U.S. unemployment claims reportedly dropped to below 200,000. And I'll talk with Cranes reporters Dennis Rodkin and Albie Galoon about how the downtown housing markets performed in 2021 and why. I had real estate agents telling me that because of crime, because of shutdowns, you would probably see a lot of uh, empty nesters from the North Shore, from Hinsdale, et cetera, rent because they didn't want to make a long-term commitment to downtown. But prices of condos convince them, actually, this is a really good deal. I'm going to get it now. And we'll look ahead to what we can expect downtown in the year ahead. If you're a tenant, you're going to have to brace yourself for some rent increases. So if you signed a lease about a year ago and it's coming up for renewal, you know, in the next few months, you're probably going to see a pretty good increase. And, you know, I think what might happen is if rents get too high in some markets and in some buildings, it might push people out to neighborhoods like Lakeview, Bucktown, Old Town. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Monday, January 3rd. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours, too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. I am joined now by Dennis Rodkin and Albie Galoon. I've never actually seen you in the same place at the same time, so this is kind of exciting. (laughs) I can confirm you both exist uh, independently. You're not the same person. Um, But you've both been reporting so much about all the action in the downtown housing markets. I've talked with you individually about everything that's happening downtown. Albie, of course, you cover rentals downtown, Dennis more condo sales, things like that. But looking at kind of December and then sort of looking ahead into early 2022. What's the outlook right now for downtown? Uh, Albie, you want to go first? Well, sure. I mean, I think it's probably pretty good for, for both of our beats. But um, on the apartment side, it's pretty remarkable what's happened over the last year. Because, you know, when we were talking about the state of the downtown apartment market, it was pretty grim. And if you were a tenant, it was great because you were getting good deals. You know, you could get three months off of your rent if you signed a 12-month lease. Now the market has totally shifted and the, the um, landlords are back in the driver's seat. And it's going to be that way for a while. I spoke to Ron DeVries of Integra Realty Resources, who tracks the market and I talk to on a regular basis. And he's predicting a 5 to 7% rent increase for 2022. So that's pretty substantial. Dennis, what about you? That kind of match up with your side of things? Yeah, I think you can take almost everything Albie said and change from rental to condo. It has been so strong. It was a surprise going into 2021 or in late 2020, the downtown condo markets were reeling. There was, I I think at one point I reported there was 24 months worth of inventory on the market. A healthy market has four to six months worth of inventory on the market. And nowhere else in our region was there 24 months. By December of 2021, it was down to four months. That's a little bit more inventory than the citywide has all over Chicago. There's about two and a half months of inventory on the market, four and a half 
four to four and a half in condos, but an enormous amount of inventory has gone off the market over the course of the year. Condo sales at the end of November, which is the latest data I have, were up 43% over 2020. And in November alone, sales were up 32% over the same time a year earlier. But I looked up November 2021 and November 2019 because we know that things were really, really bad in 2020. So compare November 2021 to November 2019, and sales are still way up in the current year than they were in 2019, which is before the pandemic market. And these are the best numbers to show that. Gold Coast and Streeterville, November 2021, 204 sales of condos and and townhouses, but that's primarily uh, condos. That's up from 116 in November 2020, which seems really bad. But in November 2019, before the pandemic, before all those problems are coming for uh, the downtown neighborhoods, 99 sales. So comparing November 2021 with 204 sales to November 2019, pre-pandemic, 99 sales, that's really sort of an indicator of just how fast things are moving in those downtown condo markets today. So you mentioned inventory, and I think that's a, a an important metric to keep an eye on. Albie, is there something equivalent in the apartment side of things when we talk about inventory? It's not really tracked the same way, but is there something close? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is Econ 101. It's supply and demand. And the demand comes from uh, you know people wanting to move downtown, largely due to jobs. That's a big driver for the downtown apartment market. But the supply is obviously it comes from developers and, you know, it depends on how many apartments developers are building. And so what we have right now is very strong demand and pretty low supply. And that's because, you know, during the, the early days of the pandemic in 2020, construction, you know, didn't shut down completely, but it really slowed to a trickle. So there was not much building going on, say, from early 2020 through spring or summer of 2021. So as a result of that, we're going to have a pretty low supply of new apartments next year, somewhere around 1,800 units in downtown Chicago. So our supply is not keeping up with demand. But again, you know how the market works in cycles, come 2023, there's going to be a pretty large increase in supply because developers are getting going again because the market is is strong and they're able to get financing. So we could see a much, uh, the story could be much different in 2023, but for right now, definitely there's more demand than supply and that is um, working in landlords' favor right now. Was there a particular turning point? Was there something that happened was it maybe two different things for apartments and condos, or was there a point in the pandemic that it started to change the tide? What what did this? I, I have to admit that, um, and, and a reporter should never admit that he's scratching his head wondering what's causing this, but that's where <laughs> I am. You know, there are various narratives that are out there that are explaining what's going on. And I think that, at least for the apartment market, maybe six months ago, People were predicting a real jump in demand for apartments as more people move downtown because they were going to get called back to their office because everything was going to open up 
and, you know, COVID cases were going to decline. And so people were going to be back in the office and they want to be close to their office. So they rent an apartment in somewhere nearby in downtown Chicago. Of course, we know what happened. Yes, people, people came back to the offices a little bit, but we didn't have this surge in people downtown. But the, the apartment market has still stayed pretty strong. So it's hard to know exactly what's going on. I mean, I do think we had a lot of people uh, mid-year who moved downtown in anticipation of being called back to the office. And, you know, I also think that maybe people just decided, hey, I need to get on with my life and I need to figure out where I'm going to live. And if I'm living in, in some resort town in Montana or wherever or with my parents, it's time for me to, you know, get, get, uh, you know, get serious about life. So I think that maybe um, that was a factor too, but I'm still kind of puzzled as to what's really going to be driving it going forward, aside from this supply and demand situation that we were talking about. Dennis, have you heard any kind of other narratives from realtors or anything like that? Well, I think it's really important that we, you know, things are doing far better in 2021 in the downtown markets than in 2020. And that's for obvious reasons. But when you compare it to 2019, you see what a surge really is going on in those downtown neighborhoods. I mean, those numbers alone, I think, comparing to, to November 2019, gives you a pretty strong idea that um, it's happening downtown. That's a good point. Albie, have you kind of heard whispers of that too? Yeah, I, I think that um, that's, that's a very good way of looking at it. And it, it is somewhat puzzling that we haven't seen much impact from this crime wave that we're seeing. And you know, the numbers are still strong despite that. So there may be a lag effect there. I don't know. But, um, you know, it's um, it's one of those things that you would think would be working against the market. And and maybe it is, as Dennis suggested, but I don't I don't really know. What about particular areas of downtown? Are you seeing more action in certain spots than others? Or is it pretty much broadly across the board happening in downtown? For the apartment market, it's definitely Fulton Market. I mean, that's that is the hot market. It's a hot market for apartments. It's a hot market for office. I mean, that's where all the action is in terms of office leasing because the, the rest of downtown is pretty slow. But there have been all sorts of leases, office leases there, and that's where a lot of the new, the new development is. I mean, they're probably taking a stab here. Five to seven new large apartment developments that are getting underway in Fulton Market, and they're are several more behind them that could get financing in the next three to six months. So that's going to be an area that's going to just become more and more residential over the next two to three years. Yeah. Dennis, what about you? Are you seeing certain pockets lighting up more than others? Well, I think a lot of what Albie said about rental, once again, applies to the condo market. This idea that people were thinking, well, I, I am going to be going back downtown again, if not for work, then for sports and theater and museums and that sort of thing, because, you know, there are always the second home buyers buying condos downtown. I may live in Hinsdale, Lake Forest, whatever it is, and I want a condo downtown, which drives a lot of this. What really happened with condos is that prices got so low that people really flooded into the market. We anticipated this with a story in the spring saying, get ready for a rush of sales. And it happened, but it happened at like twice the level that we thought it would, that I thought it would when I was writing that story, people started buying like crazy because prices came down so far. Now, one of the things we don't know is there's been this huge surge of sales. How much of a lid has been placed on that by 
crime and by people who found out they're not going downtown. What most of the agents and, and analysts I've spoken to in the last couple of months have said is, yeah, it's surging, but it probably would be surging even more. So these numbers of, of condo sales tell you there are a lot of people who are buying downtown regardless of this perception that crime is out of control downtown. They're also buying downtown regardless of the fact that they ended up not having to go back to the office as soon as they expected. However, we know they bought. What we don't know is who didn't buy because of those factors. Would this boom have been even bigger? Well, and so Albie just mentioned uh, Fulton Market in the West Loop. I mean, what's happening there condo-wise? I don't, I don't know that I can answer that geographically, but I would answer on price. I mean, I don't think we're seeing that Streeterville is going faster than the West Loop or, or any of those right now. It, it's just sort of a, a throng of purchases. But I will say one of the things to keep in mind is this is at all price levels. This is the multi-million dollar condos. You know, I keep this spreadsheet of the top priced sales of the year because we produce a story at the end of January. In the week before Christmas, I put two condos on that list. That's everything that sells for four million or more. Two were added to the list in the few days before Christmas. One was at I think seven point six million at St. Regis, which some people would think is uh, the, the old name is Wanda, and one was at about four and a half million. The number of high end condos that have sold that sold in twenty twenty one is astonishing, but. At all price levels, we've been seeing big upticks in the South Loop, the West Loop, north of the river, Lakeshore East, um, the Loop. They're all really booming. River North, they're all booming. There are over 70 new $2 million and up condos that have come on the market, that came on the market in the last few months of 2021. I've said this on the podcast before. Once upon a time, a million dollar condo was a surprise in the West Loop. Now it's old hat. Now there are, it's almost standard to have $2 million and up offerings in your building. Uh, And, and that's sort of a sign that the West Loop, the West Loop came out of the first big, the housing crash of the 2000, the mid 2000s came out of that and shot forward. Uh, Prior to the crash of 2006, seven, the West Loop and the South Loop were sort of both vying against each other to be the next cool neighborhood coming out of that housing crash the West Loop pulled out front of South Loop right away. They both had a, a lot of inventory unsold after that housing crash, far more in the South Loop. And the West Loop started out of that that housing crash. We started seeing townhouses, low-rise condos in the West Loop. And then it just built on itself and became a neighborhood completely unlike what you had seen before. South Loop, not a bad place to be, but just did not develop the cachet that the West Loop did. Okay, so let's look forward now. 2022, what, what is kind of the feeling going into this new year? Albie, let's start with you. If you're a tenant, you're going to have to brace yourself for some rent increases. So if you signed a lease about a year ago and it's coming up for renewal you know, in the next few months, you're probably going to see a pretty good increase. And you know, I think what might happen is if rents get too high in some markets and in some buildings, it might push people out to neighborhoods like Lakeview, Bucktown, Old Town, that where the um, you know they can get less expensive apartments. So that's something that I'm going to be on the lookout for. Dennis, what about you? What are you looking for in 2022? Well, I think just like Albie, 
one of the questions is how much higher will prices go? Condos, condo prices, we're, I'm talking primarily about existing condos, not new. Prices have been going up and up because they dropped so far that a huge number of people were attracted into the condo market, into the downtown condo market. At one point in 2021, I was writing about people who were priced out of or frustrated out of other neighborhoods because you were looking at multiple offers and all that sort of thing in other neighborhoods. So they moved into, they went into the South Loop, uh, into the downtown markets. Um, and we've seen so many sales that prices have been rising quickly. So will that reach a point where uh, people stop being interested in buying downtown? Or, or I shouldn't say that. Will that reach a point where the interest in buying downtown starts to diminish? I don't think it's ever going to be true that people will stop being interested in buying in downtown Chicago, which is an amazing place. But I also think that if that perception of crime, if, if, if people continue to believe there's nothing controlling this, it's getting worse and worse, it doesn't stop. I do think that at some point, people will start to say, then I'm not going to buy down there. Whether my parents are buying me my college condo to go to one of the colleges downtown, or I'm super wealthy buying a penthouse or anything in between, at some point, people will start to say, yeah, I'm, I'm just not going to do that. On the crime thing also, I think there, it's a little bit different for apartments than it is for condos because, you know, condos is a long-term commitment, right? And an apartment is 12 months. And so uh, it's less of a risk. Uh, so if you're a little concerned about, about crime, you might just say, okay, I'm just going to rent for a while and see how it goes. And then, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll buy a condo in 12, 18 months. So, you know, that could... Uh, that we could see we could see that happening. Um, I you know I could believe that scenario. Let's circle back on that from what Albie just said early in 2021. Um, I had real estate agents telling me that because of crime, because of shutdowns, you would probably see a lot of uh, empty nesters from the North Shore, from Hinsdale, etc., rent because they didn't want to make a long term commitment to downtown. But prices of condos convince them, actually, this is a really good deal. I'm going to get it now. Uh, so I think we we keep talking about how, you know, there's been so much bought and so much rented in the course of the year. But starting out the year, it looked as if, it looked to me as if more people would be turning to rental than to buying. But that turned out not to be the case. Again, largely because of price. I think I said a year ago, I can't wait to see all the data from 2021 and just see the story that it tells with rentals, with condos, with home buying in the suburbs, all of it. But now I'm already excited about what the story of 2022 will be. One of the things I think you and I have pointed out on the podcast several times, Amy, is what this data says, what Albie's data on rental, what my data on uh, for sale properties says is all those people who tell you crime is scaring everybody out of downtown, they're telling a different story that this data does not back up. I mean, I think, you know, we don't know whether tourists are, this data doesn't tell us whether tourists are scared out. This data doesn't tell us whether people are no longer coming in from the suburbs to get dinner on a weekend or anything like that. But what this data does tell us is people who want to live downtown uh, are, are buying or renting to live downtown. They're doing it. Yeah. Albie, anything you'd add to that? You're, you're nodding. Well, I would just say uh, that when it comes to apartments, there's another factor too, because 
um, there's an investment side of that. And our investors, you know, you have the supply and demand for apartments themselves, and then you have supply and demand among investors buying apartments, which makes a big difference in terms of development and, and things like that. And, you know, the crime narrative and the, um, you know, there's also a lot of trepidation about property taxes among commercial landlords and what's going to happen now that Fritz Kagi has reassessed downtown Chicago. And so, you know, that's another narrative that, you know, money is not coming into Chicago to build new apartment buildings or what have you. And so, uh, but, you know, I and, and it's true that a lot of apartment, big downtown apartment buildings have not sold this year. But I, I don't know that that's really there. I've, I've seen I've seen plenty of money coming into the city. And so I just I you know, it's just going to be something to watch in 2022. I still got to get used to saying 2022. I got to look at it in my head is like 2020 comma T.O.O. 2022. <laughs> That's how I've got to do it to get it all out. All right. Well, now is the time where we turn to three stories not on your beat that nonetheless have had your attention recently. Who would like to start there? Dennis, I went first before. Okay. Um, well, so right before Christmas, Joan Didion died. And um, I think the three of us, all journalists, have probably all read her stuff. Um, I had kind of a person, not a personal relationship with Joan Didion, but a personal relationship with her writing. Um, people m will miss her for many things she wrote, but um, I grew up in California, not a native of California, but grew up in Southern California. And I remember very, very vividly reading her piece about the Santa Ana winds, which is a, a, a very distinct Southern California phenomenon where the winds come sweeping out of the uh, Eastern mountains sweep West, raise temperatures by a lot. And it, it, people go nuts. Um, crime rates go up. And she wrote this. I remember very well reading in the white album in, it came out in 1979. I looked it up and I probably read in, I was behind. I probably didn't read it till about 1982, but it described to a T your experience in Santa Ana winds. So that, one piece is the thing I will miss or the thing I remember most about Joan Didion is her description of she talked about how you could set a Raymond Chandler novel in a Santa Ana. Um, it was it was fabulous. And so that's the to me, that's the memorial to, to Joan Didion. Yeah, there was a lot of nice tributes on Twitter when that news broke. A lot of journalists were tweeting about, oh, this one thing of hers I read that really taught me more than J School ever did, like a lot of conversation like that, I thought. What else is on your list? Well, so we've been talking about crime. I think it's really interesting that within 24 hours of each other, a Chicago area legislator and a Philadelphia area legislator were both carjacked. Um, one thing it tells you is it's not only happening in Chicago or in this case, of course, it happened in Broadview, not in Chicago. But it also, so it tells you that this is a, a scourge that's happening nationwide. But, um, you know, it's reached the level of, of legislators. I mean, you know, you, you have to know a crime victim in some cases to be concerned about crime. And in this case, is they, in this case they've been victimized. Maybe this sort of gets us closer to solving. Yeah, here's hoping. This issue or trying to solve this issue. Uh, and the last one would be, boy, these are really gloomy. I feel bad. 
<laughs> Joan Didion died, two people were carjacked, and the fact that COVID shot back up in December 2021 to where to above where it had been in November 2020. I mean, we had a record day. What was it? Uh, it was also right before Christmas. It was the 21st, 22nd of December, where the cases were way back up. I think both of you know, um, just prior to that, I have a family member who was scheduled for surgery, for inpatient surgery. And that was at the very last minute, almost canceled, but instead moved to outpatient surgery because the hospital was full. The hospital, the rooms were 100% full, 80% with other than COVID and 20% COVID uh, patients. So this surgery, which was needed, was shifted to outpatient. And that's prior to the COVID cases eclipsing where they had been in November 2020. You're right. That is a gloomy list, but it's true, but it's accurate. I mean, I know. Happy New Year from Mr. <laughs> but, Happy. But it ha- I mean, it happens. You know, sometimes there are heavy topics on our minds yeah. and it's hard not to be thinking about COVID with, you know, this spike in cases again when just, you know, I think a lot of people felt like, oh, again, this is never going to end when that, that spike happened. All right, Albie, what's in your list? Well, if Dennis is going to be Debbie Downer or, or De- we're going to call you Dennis Downer. <laughs> Dennis Downer. Dennis Downer. <laughs> Denny Downer. Uh, maybe I'll just have to lighten things up. I couldn't find anything on the Critter Beat for you, Amy, but I found the next best thing, which was um, the, uh, it was National Brownie Day recently. And uh, a bakery in Massachusetts decided to bake the biggest pot brownie in the world. 850 pounds, pounds, three feet by three feet. Uh, It broke the world record for largest brownie. It was 850 pounds. The prior record was 234 pounds. So it blew it away. Um, But According to, and I don't know if this is a reliable source or not, but celebstoner.com reported that they are not being accepted by the Guinness Book of World Records for having the largest brownie because it's cannabis infused. So that's something that we'll have to check out. But um, I thought that was an interesting. Celebstoner.com, is that your side hustle, (laughs) (laughs) Well, things don't work out at Cranes. I know where I can go. (laughs) everybody's got a side hustle these days no judgment (laughs) so then i I have i have one other one for you and uh a little while ago there was a great story on npr about an exhibit at the uh, museum in napa valley and it was all about dangerous toys that um existed back in the 50s and 60s and I think, you know, for someone of my generation, the first thing I remember is jarts. And I, I think that um, I spent a lot of time playing jarts with friends, but um, they had some even better ones, including uh, an atomic energy lab. This came out in 1950. The atomic energy lab <laughs> allowed you to play with real uranium. So, Wow. And then there was another one called The Thing Maker. It was almost like a home injection molding kit where you could play with this plastic or rubbery material uh, at 390 degrees and carry it around in little little molds. So that sounded pretty dangerous. But 
I, I did not have the opportunity when I was a kid to play with either of those two things, but I did do jarts. And, you know, another thing that was listed as um, a dangerous toy or inappropriate toy was Twister, believe it or not. Twister? Twister. Dangerous morally? Yeah. And it, does it endanger your morals? <laughs> morally. <laughs> Sexually suggestive. That's a good list. Clearly, the world has changed since then. Sure, sure, certainly. Oh, wait, are you serious that that was the danger? Was it endangers your morals? No. Yeah, and I don't know if this was in the exhibit, but I was just reading a story about how Twister back in the day was considered inappropriate. And I think that it became more appropriate when uh, Johnny Carson played Twister with, uh, I think it was Zsa Gabor or something on, on stage. So then after that, it became socially acceptable. All right, I'm going to I'm going to take this even further. So, here's what's on my list. There was recently an obituary that went viral on social media that is very very funny. Um the uh the deceased son wrote the obituary and it opens thusly. It says, "El Paso, Texas, a plus-sized Jewish lady redneck died in El Paso on Saturday." And it continues. It is the most loving and hysterical obit I have ever read in my entire life. It's so funny. There's a sentence that says, there will be much mourning in the many glamorous locales she went bankrupt in. McKeesport, Pennsylvania, Renee's birthplace and where she first fell in love with ham and atheism. Fayetteville and Kill Devil Hills, North Carolina, where Renee's dreams, credit rating and marriage are all buried. And of course, Miami, Florida, where Renee's parents, uncles, aunts and eternal hopes of all Miami Dolphins fans everywhere are all buried pretty deep. <laughs> it's hysterical. It's so beautifully written. Her son was interviewed on NPR and he's very, very funny. I mean, it's very easy to find on Google because this obituary went viral. I was suddenly like, I saw obituary trending and I saw Jewish obituary and I was like, my people, what's going on? What's happening? The woman's name was Renee Mandel Corin, And it was a lovely tribute I, what I love about it, it was, it was so real. I mean, it talks about her. It says at one point he says she was bad with money, but you know, she loved us very much. She went bankrupt. She loved to gamble and buy dirty magazines. It's very, very funny, but it was just like clearly someone who is absolutely just uh, the most authentic version of themselves. So I thought that was a lovely tribute. The other thing on my list, Drew McGarry, who's a very funny writer, mostly in the sports realm, but also some other stuff. Every year he writes The Hater's Guide to the Williams-Sonoma Catalog. And he'll go through some of the, the catalog copy and kind of mock it with his own commentary. And of course, this year's did not disappoint. There's a very funny thing about a pie bird and a turkey breast that I was laughing so hard. I thought my neighbor surely heard me laughing. A friend of mine posted it on social media and she said her little her little daughter came into the room to make sure she was okay because she was laughing so hard <laughs> reading it. So it's very funny. I highly recommend it. if you just Google uh, Drew McGarry, William Sonoma, you'll, you'll find it. It's, it's quite funny. And then just kind of a feel-good story. This happened, I, I just heard about this, but this happened early in December. There was an 11-year-old boy in Oklahoma who saved two lives in one day. This little boy, he, so he had a classmate that was choking on a bottle cap and he was, you know, panicking and moved into this kid's classroom and the kid did the Heimlich maneuver on him and then later, and saved his life. And then later that day, he saw a, a house on fire and there was an elderly woman with a walker trying to escape from it. And he helped pull her to safety. This little boy, he's 11. His name is Devon Johnson. And he uh, 
is getting some, you know, he got some accolades in his hometown and some recognition. And I was like, that's a good feel good story. Also, maybe that kid should just stay home for a little while and just like, don't be out in the world because danger might be following him right now. But those are some feel goods, I thought. I think he's going to be booked on the talk show circuit. Totally. Absolutely. I would bet Hollywood is following him right now, too. If he's not already booked on Ellen, I'm sure he will be soon. Is there still an Ellen? I don't know. Is an Ellen off the air? I don't know. I don't watch daytime TV. I'm so busy working. We're also busy podcasting. Yes, I'm so busy making sure the Cranes podcast is excellent every day. I don't have time for daytime TV. But please catch me up on the soap operas. <laughs> this is my soap opera. All right. Well, I think we've covered a lot of stuff. Thank you both. Appreciate you. And we will talk again soon. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Amy. Good chat. Coming up, the Boeing 737 MAX will once again be allowed to fly in Indonesia, more than two years after one of two fatal crashes that led to worldwide grounding of the plane. We'll talk about that and more right after this. The Greater Chicago Food Depository has never faced a need so great. Food insecurity is still above pre-pandemic levels and children are particularly at risk. Together, the Food Depository and its network of community partners can help every family in need. And they're taking on the root causes of hunger, investing in local partnerships, providing job training, and bringing food, dignity, and hope to our neighbors. Learn more at chicagosfoodbank.org. You're listening to Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. The number of people in the U.S. applying for unemployment benefits fell below 200,000. More evidence that the job market remains strong in the aftermath of last year's pandemic-related recession. The Labor Department reported on Thursday that jobless claims dropped by 8,000 to 198,000. The four-week average went down to just above 199,000, making it the lowest since October of 1969. The numbers and the relative stability of them suggest that, although it could change, the fast-spreading Omicron variant hasn't set off much in the way of job layoffs. Altogether, 1.7 million people in the U.S. were collecting traditional unemployment aid the week that ended December 18th. And that was the lowest since March of 2020, just as the pandemic was beginning to impact the U.S. economy, and down by 140,000 from the week prior. The U.S. had a near-record 11 million job openings in October, and 4.2 million people quit their jobs. Companies reportedly cut more than 22 million jobs in March and April of 2020, and the unemployment rate reached 14.8 percent. But companies have since added 18.5 million jobs since April of 2020, still leaving the U.S. 3.9 million jobs short of what it had pre-pandemic. The December jobs report, expected out within the next week, is expected to show that the economy generated another 374,000 jobs in the final month of the year. And with the latest numbers, the unemployment rate has fallen to 4.2 percent, close to what economists consider full employment. Boston Consulting Group is reportedly closing in on a deal to move its Chicago office to the Fulton Market District. Crane's Danny Ecker reports that, according to sources familiar with the negotiations, the firm's in advance talks to lease around 200,000 square feet at a new office building developer Sterling Bay has proposed at 360 North Green. In the deal, Boston Consulting would move from its longtime office at 300 North LaSalle, where its current lease expires in 2024. 
And a greenlit agreement would be a big deal for the area, a move some industry experts equate to Google's move to the neighborhood, which set off the area's transformation into a corporate destination. While other professional services firms with smaller office needs, including Kroll and Ernst Young, have leased space in the neighborhood, Boston Consulting Group would be by far the biggest and highest profile company from that sector to head to Fulton Market. And as Danny Ecker also points out in his reporting, just as noteworthy would be Boston Consulting's commitment to a site that is separated from Fulton Market's main area by Metrotrax. The firm would be the first major tenant to lease office space north of the rail that runs through the neighborhood, a sign that a new cluster of offices could form along the district's northern edge. Sources also told Cranes that Boston Consulting is targeting the move to Sterling Bay's new building while also weighing signing a new lease at its current space, where it's been since the the tower opened in 2009. Hilram Holdings faces a lawsuit by rival Lynette over allegedly monopoly-like behavior that the medical supply company squashes competitors through anti-competitive practices. As Crane's sister publication Modern Healthcare reports, in a lawsuit filed on Tuesday, Lynette says Hilram captured the business of large health systems such as Providence Health, Cleveland Clinic, and Universal Health, bundling multiple product contracts under one corporate enterprise agreement that beat Lynette's growing market share through group purchasing organizations. And a little background, Lynette entered the U.S. market in 2010 and mainly did so through relationships with group purchasing organizations that gave them the ability to go after hospital bed bids. But the company says that with the consolidation of hospitals across the country, Hillrom went after these entities to grab up multi-year and exclusive contracts. Lynette is asking the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Illinois to determine that Hillrom engaged in unlawful acts in violation of the Sherman Act, award Lynette damages, prohibit Hillrom from entering into more agreements with integrated delivery networks, and stop enforcement of current contracts. Modern Healthcare also reports that Hillrom has long dominated the hospital bed market. In 1995, federal agencies investigated the company over an antitrust probe. Since that time, Hillrom has made several acquisitions, growing its portfolio from hospital beds to digital medical devices and analytics. In early December, medical products maker Baxter bought Hillrom for $10.5 billion and said they plan to expand the company internationally and move more into physician offices, ambulatory care centers, and into patient homes. Indonesia became the latest country to allow Boeing's 737 MAX planes back in its airspace, joining Ethiopia in lifting the ban on the aircraft that crashed in both countries more than two years ago. The Director General of Air Transportation said in a statement on Tuesday that the Transportation Ministry will let airlines resume flying the aircraft in its territories after completion of the investigation process and improvements made to the plane's system. Indonesia suffered the deadliest of the two crashes involving the jet in October of 2018, which killed 189 people on board a Lion Air flight. The second crash in Ethiopia and involving the same type of plane just five months later claimed 157 lives, leading to a worldwide grounding of the aircraft and subsequent investigations that revealed design flaws in the flight control systems. Indonesia joins its neighbors, including Malaysia and Singapore, in resuming use of the aircraft. Ethiopian Airlines Group plans to resume flying the jet starting February 1st. The U.S. and Brazil cleared the plane in late 2020 and were followed by other major markets, including Europe. China, the first to ground the jet following the second crash in Ethiopia, still hasn't officially lifted its ban, though a test flight was conducted in the country in August. 
In early December, the Chinese Civil Aviation Administration said the 737 MAX jets can resume commercial flights in China by early 2022, just after issuing an airworthiness directive that paved the way for the plane to return to the Chinese skies after an almost three-year grounding. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to both of my guests in this episode, Crane's reporters Dennis Rodkin and Albie Galoon. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. And remember to rate and review Crane's Daily Gist because that's the best way for others to discover our episodes. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.